0: Diverging podcast. I'm Danielle Sullivan. I am your host, and I'm so pleased you're here with us today. Today, we have a really exciting guest who shared some really good practical tips. Everyday Living for Neurodivergence. So I hope that you will enjoy. We have our guest, Kathy Carter. Kathy is a cognitive behavioral hypnotherapist in online private practice with a mostly neurodivergent client base. She specializes in nervous system regulation, especially autistic burnout, identity, and self-esteem. Her practice is Arrive Therapy, which you can find information about in the links below, but it's at ArriveTherapy.co.uk, And she offers an international online therapy service. Kathy also works as a student counselor at a junior school for children with social, emotional, and mental health needs. She is an autistic individual herself, and she's also a neurodiversity advocate and a therapist with the enterprise Thriving Autistic, offering therapy to newly diagnosed autistic adults who have been diagnosed autistic at the adult autism practice. These organizations both offer an international online service, but are based in Ireland. At Thriving Autistic, Kathy is supporting autistic adult clients with issues around identity, minority stress, and regulation. You can find out more about those organizations at thrivingautistic.org and adultautism.ie, and we will be talking about them momentarily in the interview. Before we get to that, I just want to thank my patrons for supporting this podcast. The podcast runs on patron donations. If you are interested, please check out patreon.com slash neurodiverging, where you can find out more about how to pledge to the neurodiverging podcast to keep us running, keep us in business and to get some very excellent behind the scenes perks. Um, So neurodiverging, sorry. You can also find information at neurodiverging.com, obviously, but the Patreon is patreon.com slash neurodiverging. Today with our interview with Kathy, we will be talking about the type of hypnotherapy she practices and why it's useful for neurodivergent people. What emotional literacy and emotional regulation are and how to improve your own and your families. She gave some really great practical tips for doing that. Some ways that we can build our own emotional regulation muscles when we're feeling stressed out. And then on a completely separate tangent, because Kathy is a neurodivergent provider for neurodivergent people, I wanted to talk to her about how do we assess whether a provider, a medical health provider or a mental health provider is neurodiversity friendly and neurodiversity affirming. So we have a great conversation towards the end of the podcast about how you can make an assessment for yourself as to whether someone you're considering working with is actually neurodiversity affirming as we want them to be. So I hope this podcast will be helpful to you. I appreciate you being here today. And without further ado, here's our interview with Kathy. All right. Welcome, Kathy, to the NeuroDiverging Podcast. I'm so excited you're here. How are you doing today? I'm very good, Danielle. Thank you very much for having me. I'm I'm really excited. We were talking a little bit before we hit record, and I was so thrilled to get your message. So thank you for agreeing to be our guest. Could we just get started by, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. So you can probably tell I'm from the UK. Uh, I'm an online therapist um, with mainly neurodivergent clients uh, i work with the social enterprise thriving autistic who are based in ireland and they in turn work with the adult autism practice and um, so myself and my my uh, peers there fellow therapists we work with a lot of newly diagnosed uh, adult autistic people so i'm also in private practice in hypnotherapy and um, my uh, therapy provider is um Arrive Therapy. I'm a student counsellor at a school as well, so I work with um, junior age children, which is up to age 11 over here. Again, most of them are neurodivergent. And I'm also a neurodiversity advocate, I would say, so I write a little bit for the trade press over here, the therapy uh, therapy press. And I'm autistic. Um, I have a son who's autistic and has ADHD. And I was diagnosed autistic when he was four, so perhaps a little similar to your journey
0: very much, so yeah. like
1: diagnosed <laughs> yeah,
0: thanks so much yeah my my son was diagnosed at i want to say two and a half, and uh yeah, I was diagnosed right after you so and I also I don't know if you've met Carol Jean Whittington, who has been a previous guest and and works with autistic, but um also diagnosed after a child is diagnosed I think it's very common isn't it so yeah I, I think <laughs> it is I find in fact a, a large
1: number of my adult uh, women mm-hmm. clients I would say have gone through that journey it is very very common at the moment
0: yeah yeah it's really it's really interesting I I also in the um the coaching clients I work with find that it's mostly women who have been identified after a child has been identified either ADHD or usually ADHD or autistic. So yeah. yeah, we're definitely <laughs> missed over a lot, but I'm yes. really glad you're here and I'm excited to talk to you. Um, so I, I know you're a hypnotherapist and I don't know anything about hypnotherapy except what I Googled uh, frantically <laughs> before speaking with you and I'm sure I've got it very wrong. So would you be able to tell us a little bit more about the type of hypnotherapy you and like how it works for neurodivergent people specifically, if you can. Yeah, sure. So I feel
1: like I'm quite sort of hybrid in the sort of service that I offer. So I would say I'm a holistic hypnotherapist. So I work online and my modality is actually cognitive behavioural hypnotherapy, which, as you might imagine, is a combination of CBT and uh, hypnosis and that's looking at how we use our thoughts and our behaviours in our day-to-day lives. But I'm also quite um, interested in trauma-informed therapies, uh, like dialectical behaviour therapy and things like the polyvagal theory of the nervous system. And I find that CBT-type work isn't always that suited to neurodivergent individuals, so I can talk a bit about that if if you'd like me to, but really my hypnotherapy is about a lot of regulation you know sometimes with clients we might not really do any any pure hypnotherapy if you like but a lot of the times we will we'll be doing regulatory work relaxation mindfulness or we might embed um a little behavior somehow using it so very hybrid i think and uh, yeah a little different to what many therapists would offer
0: i have the level of CBT awareness that many coaches have, but obviously I'm not a medical professional or a, a mental health professional. I have heard, I guess that, and I guess I have seen that CBT doesn't always, isn't always a good fit for neurodivergent folks, but that uh, dialectical mm-hmm. behavioral therapy and some other modalities are better um, options. Um, from your as in the kind of ther- therapy work you do, um, has that held true? And, and do you have any sense of perhaps why CBT isn't always the best fit yeah i i do i mean i had cbt
1: myself mm-hmm. uh i suspect at that time i didn't know i was autistic i found it really great so it was a good fit for me but typically i would say uh, a lot of the time with cbt you're trying to introduce cognitive flexibility mm-hmm. and we're quite inflexible and that's okay <laughs> yeah that's okay that's part of who we are isn't it and i wouldn't want to um change a, a client who was presenting in an inflexible way because it serves them a lot of the time um it it can focus on safety seeking you know you might be avoiding some social event or something um you know autistic folk have a, a lot of social anxiety and again there's some safety seeking behaviors which are just intrinsic and okay and you know i wouldn't want to change those um Mainly for me, I don't feel that CBT as a therapy really aligns as well as I'd like with uh, sort of nervous system reg- regulation. And if you've got a client with us, you know, if we're just doing the work on ourselves, if we're quite dysregulated. So if we're in shutdown, if our if our system is very kind of slow and flat and we're very challenged, mm. the cognitive stuff. Um, all that metacognition all that processing looking at our beliefs we can't access that you know we just need to get through the day Mm -hmm. a lot of the time so you know you might have a client in that state and all they need is regulation relaxation really basic stuff you know the the cognitive work I think comes when you're a lot more regulated Um, so I, I believe it's very useful dependent on your state and yeah, how you feeling on
0: the day. Yeah, but it's maybe not step one in all the work you have to do sometimes to feel more, feel more okay yeah. in your day-to-day life.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose it's, it is a journey. So, you know, once you get into some very simple little CBT techniques, they can be almost second nature and you use them just day-to-day. But it's, yeah, it's something that isn't the first base, as you say. I I think it's, you know, certainly with clients, I would be trying to work out what's going on for them, how regulated they are. You start to look a little bit about beliefs and shoulds and all of the stuff that autistic folk have to deal with in terms of marginalisation and everything, you know, how is that affecting their view of the world? Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, um, I I do use it and I'm a fan, but I would urge a little bit of caution with CBT. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I also have, um, personally, like as a, as a client with CBT and it was very helpful for me, yeah. but I also have bumped into many times, um, places where it's just not a good fit. Um, and as you mm-hmm. say, I don't want to be pushing clients who are highly stressed and highly dysregulated into, you know, like, like you said, I think it's a really good point that we can't always access our feelings or our, our thoughts to alter them with, with, cognitive behavioral therapy um, when we're that you know rigidity comes with stress so the more the more uh, stressed out we are the harder it is to access and stuff so i think that's a really good point thank, thank you, you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um so you talked a lot right there about um emotional regulation and sense kind of you didn't say sensory but that that um polyvagal systems you know getting aligned getting <laughs> coordinated mm-hmm. in your body um do you have a sense of why so many people, especially autistics, have so much trouble identifying emotion and regulating emotions in their day to day life? Yeah, I think it's a combination, isn't it? So
1: many things. Obviously, the executive function difficulties, the sensory stuff, you know, obviously big challenges. Yeah. And I think we, just as humans, as the population, we aren't terribly in touch with our nervous system. So, Um, you know you've got alexithymia obviously when we can't quite connect with that feeling but also I think autistic folk have trouble processing our emotions Mm -hmm. in the moment so if someone says how are you feeling you know we probably know very well or can access at some point how we're feeling or work it out but in the moment it's very hard just to say oh I'm sad I'm happy or whatever and you know that's part of our neurology a lot of the time I think, as I alluded to, you've got the oppression and the marginalisation and that brings anxiety, doesn't it? Minority stress, that leaves us a bit disconnected. And I think we're not very in touch with our nervous system. So uh, I've, I guess, developed quite a good sense now what state I'm in. But for example, you know, you can be up in... The fight or flight response, or down in the shutdown freeze response, and in each little response, really, there's a state, and in that state, our bodies experience different things, different sensations, and the thoughts are very different as well. So, you know, we're we're just not always sure what state we're in, and of course, children don't get taught all of this stuff at school of, of any uh, neurotype. <sighs> In most children it's not there is it danielle it's just not taught unless the parents are able to to help their children regulate
0: mm-hmm.
1: so yeah i think we we're just not used to regulating and yet people expect us to all the time so it's i think it's about personal growth personal development and just getting to know yourself really mm-hmm.
0: yeah yeah so i'm an unschooler i uh, have my kiddos at home with me now. But when they were in traditional conventional school systems in Colorado, Colorado has a really, for the United States, from what I can tell, a relatively robust social emotional learning program um, for preschoolers and on up where they are, to some degree, helping kiddos identify their emotions, talk about their emotions, and then communicate about them to others. And it's it's great. And I'm glad it exists. But even that is so little compared to what I feel like many neurodivergent kiddos need, especially my neurodivergent children um, who are autistic and ADHD. Um, We do so much work daily on just how are you feeling? You know, what is that like in your body? And then sort of finding that on a scale of, You feel like this is big. Is this really big? Right. Um, Or you feel like this is a small problem. Is it really a small problem? Just sort of contextualizing, I guess, is the best way to say that. But I know many other places don't have any kind of social emotional learning in school systems. And I don't know how it is in Britain or if it's more cohesive than the United States is because schooling in the United States is very, varied depending on where you are.
1: Yeah, I'm not I'm not really sure I can answer that because my experience is, I guess, fairly limited. But I I found based on the school I work at, at my Sunday school and my client schools, that it's very dependent on the staff. Yeah. So if you have usually a head teacher who is very focused on social, emotional and mental health needs, as my school is where, where I work as a student counsellor, the children are so lucky, you know, they've got a sensory room. Um, they have a student counsellor at the school as well as other counsellors you know every uh, classroom name is named after a positive value it's it's intrinsic it's built in but I do know that lots of schools aren't that fortunate for whatever reason so I feel it's a bit dependent on the staff actually and and you know the support they've got access to
0: yeah so maybe similar to the United States, at least a little bit mm-hmm. in that, that one specific sense. Yeah. 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 Can we go back to emotional literacy a little bit? Um, we talked about why it's hard for adults. It's hard for adults to, to really, really sum up very briefly what you said, because you said it much better, but adults have trouble Regulating because we don't get enough practice in childhood, at least to some degree, right? Um, and we, we have trouble identifying for the same reason that we don't get enough practice and it's not maybe highlighted enough in our day to day. For folks who are working on their kind of emotional literacy, understanding their feelings, regulating their feelings as adults, um, are there kind of go-to ways that we can build some of those muscles up or are there... Um, Obviously, it's very individual, but are there some exercises or some ideas that you might have for sort of the general population to help that?
1: Yeah, so certainly with the young people I work with, I do always encourage them to develop a sort of emotional toolkit. You know, so we talk about values and strengths and so on and how to calm down or regulate with things like music or uh, discharging with sensory toys. But I do have a little, I guess, exercise um, that I use a lot with my clients, which I developed from DBT, but it uses the acronym RED, Mm -hmm. I would say if if people kind of practice this day to day, it's for, for use when you are heightened, really, hence seeing RED. So the R would be to regulate. So in that moment, you know, you're triggered, you're heightened, maybe you've gone into fight or flight something's happening in your body you're getting those sensations do something to regulate whether that's a relaxation technique a breathing technique a lovely one is just to breathe in and hold for maybe six counts breathe out slowly and just do that Mm. two or three times the parasympathetic nervous system kicks in yeah and that's just a very just in that moment and it takes seconds just the first thing to do E is for evaluate. So work out what's happening. Is your body indeed under threat as it perhaps thinks it is? Can you respond rather than react? Um, What's happened to my nervous system? You know, what's happening? Is my heart beating faster? You know, evaluate what's happening in your body and your surroundings. Think about what you can see, what you can hear, what you can sense and try to bring The attention back more internally with the breath again and then the d is do something so this is where you grab your toolbox you grab your skills you could suck something very sour you know and you can have a little pack in your purse or your bag of of these useful things some of those tangfastic sweets you know (laughs) the the haribo ones something really that makes you you know makes your face face, yeah (laughs) they are great for distraction Mm -hmm. Um, Something cold, you could travel with a bottle of cold water and just tip some of that on your wrists uh, or hold it on your temples. Or if you're indoors, you know, go grab an an ice cube or something, hold it on your wrists or your temples. Listen to, you know, a music track. I like sort of punk and rock if I'm feeling quite heightened, so I would use that to regulate. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You could use a cognitive technique like counting backwards from 100, maybe. That's a very good distraction. Uh, affirmations I'm in control of my mind and body it's the lovely one you could visualize a safe place which is something we do in hypnotherapy quite a lot but ahead of needing to do it when you're heightened and you can tap the collarbone you know these sort of um, emotional freedom technique type tapping mm-hmm. you could use a havening when you're sort of stroking the top of the arms and all of that can take you know minutes or seconds and if you're practicing it at the traffic lights or when the kettle boils, uh, it, it's a really good little tool it, in that heightened moment when someone's cut you up in traffic or you know your child has triggered you or you've triggered your child, just to remember, oh, okay, Red, regulate, evaluate, do something. Um, I, I do a lot along the film Inside Out, mm-hmm. you know, with that lovely sort of panel of collaborative characters. So I always talk, especially to the young people, about their version of that. Um, You know, what are their parts? What are their configurations? And and often we'll give them names Mm -hmm. Um, and the child obviously thinks of the name or draws them even. So that is really good, I think, for emotional regulation to go, oh, okay, it's my squiggly fluff is one of the names (laughs) I love. That's my squiggly fluff is—I know, isn't it lovely? It's—it's driving—it's driving my train at the moment. It's driving my body. It's in control, and you know, I'm actually in charge here. So thanks, squiggly fluff. Let's just calm everything down, and you know, just think about that little control panel in the brain and who's in charge. And essentially, the the individual has to be in charge, not a little part that's being triggered. And there's obviously stuff around. You know, boundaries and self care, uh, all of the usual things that we just need to do to be healthy humans, essentially. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, but that was a fantastic list of like kind of red alert, immediate uh, response. Um, I especially appreciate, I think my tendency personally is to go for the cognitive sort of you know, distract my brain piece, but I Mm -hmm. certainly have clients and my kiddos are much more sensory distract sensorily. So the ice, the, you know, those kinds of, um, the sour is a great, I've never done that. And now I'm like, Oh, I'm going to try that the next time. One of my children specifically has, has that kind of overwhelmed feeling. I'm like, that will work really well. And I've never considered it. So thank you so much. I'm sure that lots of listeners are like, Oh, that's a great list. So, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Often you're distracting
1: your brain, aren't you? It's in, in that moment, you just need to give it something else to think about. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, overwhelm can lead to panic, can't it? You know, that there's yes. a moment in between, you know, the sensory input, your reaction to it, and then what happens next. Yes. So if there's any way to slow down the process and react a little more carefully and slowly, it might reduce the meltdown it might stop the meltdown or it might stop some kind of self-injurious behavior Mm -hmm. um it might just mean you take less time to regulate back up and to recover so yeah i think and and people will find their own little tools you know there's you know lovely things like weighted blankets and uh, olfactory things smelling a certain scent is is really nice sometimes and that's often not the blanket but you know the sense, the rollable
0: sense, you can have that in purse, can't you? And yeah. yeah, just develop a toolkit. That's really helpful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts or ideas about the nervous system and regulation that folks can kind of take home and use? Like the red system is so, I love how direct it is and how you can just grab it in a moment of crisis and it's very short and sweet. So there's a sort of
1: concept that I, I really just use myself initially but i find it really useful for clients of all ages and all neurotypes actually so this isn't exclusive to neurodivergent clients but i see the nervous system as a traffic light essentially so you've got um, red amber and green and this little theory i suppose ties in with polyvagal theory it massively ties in with attachment which i know yes. you're passionate about as well danielle <laughs> And, and lots of other theories along you know, the hierarchy of needs and even energy centers in the body. There's so many things that I think this is a fit for. But I really see the autonomic nervous system as a, as a sort of three-tiered ladder is another way to look at it. So up top in the green is our very connected, um, quite securely attached, um, very up-energized, safe, place that's the important word it's a safe place and for many autistic folk we do struggle to stay up there you know we're often dysregulated we're triggered by sensory stuff it is quite hard to stay up there but when we're there you know we feel good the inner critic isn't there on our shoulder we're just safely connecting to people animals the world around us underneath that in the the traffic light system would be amber and for me Amber is my warning sign. I I sort of know that if I overdo it when I'm in amber, red zone might follow. And that's a little trickier to deal with. So amber is also quite productive, but it's your fight or flight. So it's heightened. It's a bit anxious, basically. Um, it's when we might fire into anger, when we might fire up into indignation, very triggered easily, lots of anxiety based responses it feels to me when I'm like that as I am I would say most of the time a fast existence my head feels fast yeah and the red zone is the shutdown or indeed the freeze response and that is I for me that's where you would find burnout and shutdown. I think a meltdown would probably occur higher up you know that's the heightened stage and then you crash into red Mm -hmm. and that's recovery you know it's They're all normal and natural, and we dip in and out of them, or we should dip in and out of them. I think neurodivergent folk get stuck a little bit. But yeah, when you're down there, that's a little dangerous, really. That's where we can find, I guess, more self-injurious behaviours, less self-care. That's when all of the self-talk is quite negative. Mm -hmm. You're feeling flat. You're feeling tired. You've got a low mood. And I, I just, like I alluded to earlier, if you can ascertain which state you're in, I find it very useful. But you need to be quite accepting as well, so not to fear the red state, not to be cross with yourself when you're in it, just to accept that today is a red day. Mm-hmm. I'm, I need self-care. I, I'm going to have low demands. Uh, I'm really going to look after myself and and nurture myself and sit with what comes up and be very compassionate towards it, knowing I will get out of it. It's a state mm-hmm. we can get out of it. And there are ways to get out of it with safe connection to people or animals, walks in nature, regulatory tools like a game with the music and, and whatever works for you. But yeah, the little analogy, I suppose, of the traffic light feels quite easy for people to understand, and especially young people as well.
0: Yeah that's a really great tool and I can see it being used I had so many thoughts while you were speaking I can see it being used in families especially because it I have a uh, one concern I get from a lot of <laughs> clients coaching clients who are parents is that they get overwhelmed and their child still has needs and they're not sure how to navigate that and so part of what I always recommend is you know setting talking with your kiddo and, and setting some vocabulary that's the, the same across. So if you both take breaks, you both, you know, whatever your strategies are, you both have access to them at all times. And so that way the child is more likely to understand when the parent is, you know, in redder or, or Amber. Um, and mm-hmm. I, but I had not gotten to the point in my own thought process of putting, putting it into a physical object, like a traffic light, and that is beautiful. And I can imagine that many people will get a lot of value out of that. So thank you oh, so thank much you. for sharing it. Yeah, okay. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, so the other thing I want to talk to you about today is a completely separate topic. But when um, when we were originally talking together, um, I know that you do um, some training for other uh, mental health providers and other folks on how to be more neurodiversity affirming in their practice um, and how to bring human rights work and and autistic rights into their mindset when they're working with neurodivergent clients and and people. Um, Do you have any advice for autistic or neurodivergent individuals who are looking for neurodiversity affirming providers? Because at least in the US, there's not great ways to assess that. You can ask individual providers if they're neurodiversity affirming. But sometimes they'll say yes, but really not have the training (laughs) that supports that. And I've had many um, kind of emails and questions from um, podcast listeners and and coaching clients who have reported just unfortunately really sad negative experiences with providers who are meant to be neurodiversity affirming and not. So how do we as clients assess (laughs) whether somebody actually is neurodiversity affirming in their practice and their kind of concept of treatment um, versus just kind of saying it because it's the buzzword. Do you have any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think likewise, it's it's the same for us. I feel things are improving, but it's still very challenging. So first off, I would look for the language that the provider is using. I personally like identity first language, so I am autistic rather than I have autism that's not universal but for me you know that's that's something I would look for I find the puzzle piece quite dated and a bit off-putting so if a website was emblazoned with that I would I would find it a little alarming very medicalized language which I know is is a hard one to overcome because you know depending on who's funding the the provision you know obviously we're talking diagnosis here is medicalised. But again, if it's too much, I would want to see some of the social model coming into, you know, their advertising materials, their social media and so on. And um, I would look for neurodivergent people working there or on the board, you know, if it's a charity or, or some bigger provider. And that's obviously an asset they'll promote. So most organisations like yourself and like myself will mention it because we know it's a way of connecting with clients. Um, I would avoid any coercive training type provisions that try to take away a client's autonomy. You can spot them, I think, quite easily. Uh, if it's a, a provider, you know, an individual, you can go onto their website and look out for very neurodiversity-affirming language. They might flag it up on the listing. I personally, and and this is a bit, you know, of my opinion. I I find it off-putting when an individual or service provider knocks label so I know it's quite cool to not have a label so you'll hear things like autism doesn't define you or you know your many other things other than your autism as if we could take it on and off but but certainly over here and I'm sure in, in many autistic communities the label is part of our identity our tribe our kinship. So just as being gay or gender fluid, gender diverse is a community and an identity for me and a lot of my clients being autistic is like that too. So I've had multiple therapists uh, use quite non-affirming language with me and say you don't look autistic and things like that. Uh, That's a red flag. So I mentioned at the start that I work with Thriving Autistic so this is a social enterprise that lists a lot of neurodivergent therapists in all sectors, um, from counsellors and hypnotherapists to occupational therapists. And most of them will work internationally online. So thrivingautistic.org has a list of therapists there, which your listeners may well be able to utilise. Mm-hmm. Um, over here, we've got the Association of Neurodivergent Therapists, which is another non-profit that has therapists working out of the UK and Ireland and again a lot of those may well work online they're at neurodivergenttherapists.com and I suppose mainly I would just try and speak to the provider trust your instinct ask them questions you know find out what training they've got find out who is there who is autistic or neurodivergent and just see what what your gut tells you really I think
0: that's there's a lot to be said for trusting your instinct yeah, thank you. I appreciate how you elucidate some of the problems with the language, the puzzle piece, the way autism is framed as an identity or, or is not framed as an integral part of, of who we are sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. That is a piece that, you know, I can gut check and say that doesn't feel right, but I had not actually gotten to the point of my own thinking of getting the link between how disassociating ourselves from our identities is actually, like for a provider to do that does link to potential harm in the future. So I really mm-hmm. appreciate that. Um, I, I think it's,
1: you know, widespread um, across education, mm-hmm. social work, psychotherapy, counseling, just everywhere. and. There's a lot of changes around equality and equity and, you know, disability awareness and acceptance, but it does come in small steps. So I suppose if we're able to flag it up, um, you know, we can do so, can't we, in in quite a a kind and helpful way. If we find therapists or providers, I've done it recently, actually. Um, There's a a local authority um, who gave a presentation at my son's school and I quite I hope helpfully suggested to them some changes to their website because some of the language
0: was a little dated and so on and
1: I think we can all do that if we see it we say it you know flag it up because that's how we all learn isn't it
0: yes exactly and approaching kind of kindly and curiously and helpfully a lot of folks respond very well to and they are many people are trying their best to be supportive and just don't have the resources or the you know the access to the kind of education that's most up to date. So I appreciate you saying that. Wonderful, thank you. So the the links that you mentioned just for listeners will be in the show notes and also linked below. So please go check that out at thrivingautistic.org and adultautism.ie. And uh, I will also be linking Kathy's website at arrivetherapy.co.uk. And she offers, you offer, right, international online therapy. So folks can access you potentially from worldwide.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's so easy now, isn't it? With all of I our love technology. It.
0: <laughs> yeah. it has made this podcast and many other things possible. So I'm very yes. grateful for
1: it. Pop on to arrivetherapy.co.uk and I've got some podcasts there. I've got some blogs there, some content. Yeah, everything's there.
0: I was on the website last night and there's some really good blog material, especially. Maybe I just focus on the reading because that's my brain, but um, yeah. I, I liked your post on the polyvagal theory and how it connects to neurodiversity affirming and there's some really good stuff so i encourage people to go check it out links below thank you so much for being here today kathy i really appreciate it i think people will get a lot from this interview oh well thank you danielle it's been such a pleasure
1: i've really enjoyed it
0: thank you so much for joining us on the neurodiverging podcast today i really appreciated kathy's description of some of her systems that she uses to help people in emotional distress, like the red system and the traffic light system. I hope that they will be useful for you. I really encourage you to go find out more about Kathy and perhaps see if she might be a good fit for you. Check out the links below and in the show notes. And also we have a transcript available for folks who would like it. I am available. If you have comments or ideas at neurodiverging.podcast at gmail.com. And I look forward to seeing you again in the next podcast please remember we are all in this together